entering the Freedom Hut. The tyranny of the interagency consensus, Elizabeth Warren's health care debacle, the Katie Hill lies, threats about outing the whistleblower, and Zuckerberg shoots down Sorkin. That and more coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One make, make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Saxon Show, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Great to have a chance to uh, address you all across the country and in some cases all around the world. We have a lot of stuff to get to for a Friday, so I feel like shouldn't stand too much on ceremony and just get right to it. I do want to note, though, that uh, one of my predictions came true. In fact, many of my predictions come true, but this one in particular I'm proud of. I told you that as soon as everybody learned about Conan the Barkarian, as we are calling him, Conan the Hero Dog, there would be a surge in interest in Belgian Malinois, the breed of dog that uh, Conan happens to be one of. And now ABC News had a story this morning. Remember, I told you that people are going to want to start getting the Belgian Malinois. It's going to become very trendy. ABC predicted this morning thousands now want the breed of Hero Dog involved in the al-Baghdadi raid. But experts warn that they are too much for most people. Who told you, folks? Who told you? Not only that they were too much for most people, but that there would be this surge in interest. So as beautiful and incredible as Belgian Malinois and even German Shepherds, uh, Dutch Shepherds, these different working dog breeds are, they are not something that you want to just pick up and bring home to the kids. You're going to have your hands more than full. Important safety tip from the Freedom Hut today. All right, let's get to the tyranny of the interagency consensus. Fantastic piece today uh, from my friend Mark Hemingway, husband of Molly Hemingway. Uh, Mark is a great writer in his own right over at The Federalist. And his piece is called Donald Trump versus the interagency consensus. And this is a particularly important time for this because as part of all of this impeachment Stuff you see going on, brouhaha, which is a fun word to say, Uh, this impeachment fracas, ruckus. I think these are all words that we could use. You are seeing people come forward who can't help but let it be known that while they are government employees, they think that the bosses within the government that are elected by the people to oversee the federal bureaucracy the, the machinery of the day-to-day of the federal government, that the people who work inside the machinery think that they're not just executing on orders, they're really there to drive things. And that the elected officials come and go, but the bureaucracy is forever. Uh, this is troubling stuff. And when you add that to the admission, more recently, uh, of the former... I think he was the former acting CIA director, uh, John McLaughlin, when he was being asked by a CBS, one of the liberal CBS journos about Trump's impeachment. Here is what now I know people will take this in different ways. I'll tell you how I'm going to take it. But here is what the former CIA director, John McLaughlin, um, who is a guy from inside the bureaucracy for a very long time. 
Here's how he talks about the deep state. Play four, please. You have to agree that now oh, totally. the impeachment inquiry is underway, sparked by a complaint from someone within the intelligence well, you know, community. The, the funny, it feeds the president's uh, the, concern and often used term about a deep state being well, there to take you him know, out. Thank God for the deep state. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think... You know, everyone here has seen this progression of diplomats and intelligence officers and White House people trooping up to Capitol Hill right now and saying, these are people who are doing their duty who are responding to a higher call. Think about it for a minute. With all of the people who knew what was going on here, it took an intelligence officer to step forward and say something about it, which was the, uh, the trigger that then unleashed everything else. Now, why does that happen? What I tell American people why that happens is this is the institution in the U.S. government that with all of its flaws and it makes mistakes is institutionally committed to objectivity and to telling the truth. I will tell you as somebody who used to work in the CIA that that's a very rosy picture of what the institutional commitment of that organization or any any part of the intelligence bureaucracy uh, what the day-to-day really is, is something quite different from that. There's a lot of complexity involved here. There are concerns about access. How do you shape policymaker beliefs without actually telling policymakers what to do? These are the back and forths that you'll hear about from people who've actually worked in the intelligence community. But I'm also going to tell you that there are a lot of people who work in the federal government who really think that, first of all, they're overwhelmingly personally politically Democrats, and in some cases, really leftists. They've gone into government work because they believe in the power of government to do good things. And they also think that if we're going to have this big, shiny toy that that is the federal government, they want to be in control of it. And they want it to do the things that they are ideologically aligned with it doing. That the mission is not top down from the president as the head of the executive branch, The mission is what the people inside the walls of whatever this federal agency is think it should be. And they give lip service to the guy who's or has always been a guy up to up to date lip service to the guy who is giving the orders. Yeah, sure, sure. We'll do what you say, but we're also going to be working to do things differently in our own way. And in no presidency has this been more clear than the presidency of, of Donald Trump. I think it's also worth noting that we were initially told that talk of a deep state was a conspiracy theory. That if you spoke of bureaucrats inside the federal government who thought they had a mission apart from what the actual mission from the commander-in-chief was, you were engaged in some misdirection, fantasy, you were misled. Uh, You must have been a consumer of fake news. And then we found out about McCabe and Comey and Page and Strzok and Yates and Brennan and Clapper and the top echelon of federal law enforcement and the intelligence community under the Obama administration, none of whom are supposed to be explicitly political. And now beyond any reasonable doubt, we know that they were deeply political, objected to Trump, not just on specific issues, but in general objected to his elevation to the role of commander-in-chief and believed that they had a duty to thwart his desires, his directives, 
his mission, his promise to the American people. They never really accepted that he won the election and therefore the will of the American people expressed through that election should be pursued. There should be efforts made to execute upon that plan, not the plan of the bureaucrats who had been there for a very long time in D.C. And this is where we get to the the consensus views of the interagency. What does that really mean? That came up recently in the testimony of, of uh, Vindman. And this was from his, his written statement. Now, you would find that that's a troubling, a troubling thing for someone to use as a justification for objection to the president of the United States as a policy matter in Ukraine. The views of the interagency, this, I can tell you, is also really a misnomer. What ends up happening in the intelligence community is that there will be an expression of one point of view from one agency that is the best approximation of what a majority of the senior people in that organization, leveraging some of the expertise of the younger people, think of an issue. And then it will often be, as part of the interagency process, balanced with the views of other agencies, many of whom have different equities, have different mission sets and tools at their disposal and expertise. And at the end, they, they kind of just blurt out this product or this briefing or this decision on a specific issue to the uh, president of the United States that represents a so-called consensus. But by the time it gets to that level, it's often so watered down as to be largely meaningless. And also momentum carries the day. What does CIA think now? What does DIA or NSA or any of these agencies, what do they think now? Chances are it's kind of similar to whatever they thought a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago about the issue, unless there's been some massive change. Right? They tend to have their own customs and ways of doing things, ways of thinking about things, institutional biases about different problem sets around the world. What do we think of talking to North Korea? What do we think of engaging China in a trade war? What do we think of counterterrorism? I mean, all across the board. And I know because I sat in meetings where important issues were discussed in the intelligence community, and we're trying to find some consensus-ish position, and there's really no such thing. There's really no such thing. It doesn't, the, the consensus on Ukraine? Well, there was no consensus on Ukraine policy because the Obama administration refused to give them lethal aid. Then the Trump administration came in and did give them lethal aid. So that was a change from the commander in chief. Were there a lot of complaints before about Obama's unwillingness to do what was necessary to really help the Ukrainians? No, of course not. Uh, and then we get to what the real consensus of the interagency and what we find is the consensus of the deep state. It's anti-Trump. That was the only thing that they all really could agree on. That will, That is what was motivating so much of what we saw in terms of the actions of these senior bureaucrats to frustrate the president's decision making and beyond that to destroy the president to undermine the president to work with reporters and the democratic party and whomever to work with foreigners in the case of christopher Steele assembling the dossier and using russian or ukrainian or whatever sources and running that laundering that dnc paid for document through 
our own intelligence community, and then starting a FISA warrant on Carter Page, a full field investigation on George Papadopoulos. This stuff is insane. They didn't just oppose in principle. They opposed by taking it upon themselves to use the power within the government that they had to wage a political war, a political vendetta against Donald Trump because the consensus of the deep state was and is that Donald Trump is unfit, unacceptable, and did not really win the 2016 election. So they are under no obligation. We often hear the Democrats now talking about how Trump swore an oath. He has to uphold and defend the Constitution. Well, guess what? Part of that Constitution establishes President Trump as the commander-in-chief of the executive branch and of the military. And they don't get to, in the deep state, just decide that they wash that away, they, they push that aside, and their mission then becomes whatever they say it is. They're giving their own orders now. You know, the bureaucracy has become self-aware, kind of like Skynet in the Terminator movies, and that didn't end well for us. The only consensus opinion that they're really sure of is that they have to do everything they can to stop Donald Trump. They used to say there was no deep state. Then they said, okay, fine, there are a few people in the deep state. Now they're saying, thank God for the deep state. And it's like we're supposed to pretend that we didn't know this was coming all along and they haven't been lying to us all along. First, they insisted that the president is a Russian agent. Then they claimed he's a money launderer and a tax cheat and a fraudulent businessman. And now they've decided they don't like the way he talks to foreign leaders. But they have no evidence and no argument to support impeachment. All they have is the unconditional cooperation of the media and their advance to advance their preposterous narrative. What is more likely, to repeat one of my favorite challenges here on the show, what's more likely that President Trump is at the same time, according to Democrats, guilty of all of these horrible offenses? And Congressman Nunes there laid out a number of them. Some have gone away as a result of finding out more facts. Others have been stretched out now and they've added to it or they've moved the goalposts. They found some way to keep the allegation alive. But what is more likely that Trump is the idiot that the left says he is, but also able to do all these things and get away with them or that Democrats have abandoned reason, fairness and decency and are just throwing every allegation they can against a president that they just cannot stand. They hate this guy. They hate him because of what his ascent means about the way they view the world. They hate him because it means that there's someone who will challenge some of the not just political, but some of the cultural norms out there that have affected politicians, especially on the right for a long time, that he'll take the fight right to the media. They can't stand this guy. And the only way that they could stop being so crazy about him would be to come to grips with all the lies that they've told so far, and they won't do that. And the people that have believed this, the people that have been spoon-fed the nonsense from CNN and from MSNBC, those who've been lied to by the New York Times, the Washington Post, all these expectations about the Mueller probe, ending the Trump presidency, freeing us all from the long, dark night of Trumpness. Turns out that that wasn't true, but the people that believed it to be true can't be told that. They have to be told, don't worry, it's coming just around the corner. 
And that's where Nancy Pelosi and all the Democrats come in. That's where the people who are part of very much at the top of the establishment and who often conflate credentials with credibility or credentials with competence. And just because you're the boss of something, you're the head of something, you're the speaker of something doesn't mean that you're a good person, a knowledgeable person or a wise person. The elites don't like that, though. They don't like the challenge of somebody coming forward to say, hey, I know you've all made fun of me. You thought I was a joke. Here I am. The people have empowered me. And I'm now, as Donald Trump, pointing fingers at people and saying, well, who are you exactly? Why should you be in this elevated position? Why should you be able to walk around so smug and dictatorial at the same time? Based on what? A lot of people, a lot of people in the media, a lot of Democrats in academia, in the legal profession, in Hollywood, they don't have good answers for that. And it unsettles them. It really bothers them at a core level. And so that's why Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats, as I've been saying all along, and you listen to the show, you know, I, I try not to be that guy who says, I predict the future. A lot of people do this on radio and it's annoying to me because they just tell you about their winners. They don't tell you about their losers. But I tend to be right. Hopefully that's one of the reasons why you listen to the show. I've always been saying Nancy Pelosi, she's going to make sure that this president is impeached. That's stretching back for two years now. She's going to impeach this president. Why? Because of the emotional, psychological need of the Democratic Party and the people who run it to lash out at Trump, to have to have yet another moment of not my president. This is not any cause for any glee or comfort. This is something that is very solemn, that is something prayerful, and that we had to gather so much information to take us to this next step. I rise in strong support, but I do not take any pleasure in the events that have made this process necessary. I rise in strong support of the resolution, but I do so with an understanding that the task before us is a solemn one. How each member of this chamber approaches the vote this morning and the days and weeks ahead may be the most important service as members of Congress we will ever pay to the country and constitution that we all love and have pledged to defend. Oh, these Democrats are so, it's just, they really don't want to do this to Trump. It's just so serious and they know how serious it is. And there's no joy. No, there's no schadenfreude at Trump's misfortune. There's no sense of, ha ha, we're pulling off another scam against this guy because he keeps beating us and we can't accept the reality of what's going on in the country under a Trump presidency. We have to keep creating this fake world of Trump is destroying everything and everybody. Does anyone believe these idiots? Pelosi and Schiff and all the rest of them. Oh, no, we we take no joy in this whatsoever. Really? Why are they doing it? It's preposterous. Schiff ran around for two years saying that there was evidence of Trump colluding with Russia. Schiff ran around promising his constituents and all Democrats and leftists across the country that President Trump's day would come when finally he could no longer hide from his treason. Remember, folks, that is what they were accusing this president of. Is there any reflection that comes from being wrong for two years, Madam Schiff? Of course not. He served his purpose. If nothing else, and the Democrats won't admit this publicly, the Mueller probe in a sense worked. 
It obstructed the president, slowed down his administration, kept good people from going to work in this administration. The Democrats have already managed to rob Trump of some of the powers of his office by running around with these insane, deceptive, destructive narratives. But then to have the temerity, to have the brazenness to sit there and act like they don't want to do this. Oh, I don't want to do this. I just Donald Trump is forcing my hand. It's weak stuff. We all know exactly what's going on here. You had the House vote yesterday, 232 to 196 to approve the resolution setting out rules for an impeachment process. So now there's some rules of the road that they have agreed to in the House. How many Republicans went along with this in whatever we're calling it, this vote to begin an impeachment inquiry that we were told had already begun a couple weeks ago? How many Republicans have defected? Zero. This is an entirely partisan vote, which is new, which is new in the history of impeachments. Republicans were had turned on and were turning on Nixon. And some Democrats went along with the Republicans in the impeachment proceedings against Bill Clinton. So this strictly party line vote shows you exactly what's going on here. This is just a power play by the Democrats seeking to undo an election that they did not like in advance of just barely another election of a president that they say is so stupid and so dangerous that it should be obvious the American people wouldn't reelect him. Here's what we all know. They are terrified that this president will get reelected. Why shouldn't they be? Look at the jobs numbers today. Look at what's going on in the country. Oh, we were told if Trump moved troops out of that part of Syria, there'd be genocide and ISIS would rebound and a huge terrorist army would sweep across. Or we'd find out that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was dead a week later. Thanks to our special operators, some good work by folks in the national security realm at the direction of the president of the United States. Economy's still doing very well. Biggest problem now is there's so little in the way of unemployment. There's so little for Democrats to sink their teeth into as criticism against Trump that they just have to keep repeating these crazy narratives. And we have to sit here and spend time shooting down the insanity. Impeaching the president for what? What's the purpose of this inquiry? How many of you even heard about the NSC staffer who came forward and said that as soon as he heard, this was yesterday, when he heard the initial Trump phone call with Zelensky, that he thought there was nothing illegal, there's nothing wrong with it. What law, what law was broken? And at the end of all this, you have to remember, the aid was not cut off. The investigation to Biden did not occur. So we're going to criminalize a conversation between two heads of state that resulted in no action, nothing done, and that he was completely within his constitutional rights to do in the first place. This is this is what it is. If the Democrats did not have their just quizzling little media toadies in their pockets. They would never be able to try to pull this off. It's so flimsy. There's no there there. There's just nothing to speak of. That's why they work so hard at pushing stories that any person who spends any time digging into says, is this it? This is really what's happening? There are some Republicans who, it does seem to me, have an understanding of what is really going on here. 
Um, Representative Cheney, by the way, has some fire. Representative McCarthy has quite a lot to say about this, too. Uh, Producer Mark, please do five and six for me, if you would, sir. This is a process that has been fundamentally tainted. The president has had no rights inside these hearings. His counsel has not been able to be present. So for them now to claim that they're suddenly going to open the process up, which, by the way, this resolution does not do. The resolution says that they're going to continue doing what they want to do. It gives authority for open hearings. But they cannot go back and fix what is a fundamentally tainted and unfair record. Elections have consequences. Our fellow Americans use their vote to choose who will work for them. So I ask you all a simple question, especially to my colleagues. Is that what is happening here today? Are we gathered in these final moments before we depart for a week to fund our government, to pay our troops? Are we gathered today to prove a new trade deal? Or are we gathered to debate the critical national security issues regarding China or Iran? Well, that answer would be unanimously no. We are not working for the American people. Those items would resemble the achievements of a productive Congress, a Congress that truly works for the people. What is this Congress doing? With the Democrats in the majority, it is working in the deeply undemocratic fashion that we currently see underway where they're trying to undo an election from 2016. That's it. We have the American people lined up and ready in almost exactly 12 months. We'll be able to decide what they really think of a Trump presidency. But Democrats seek to short circuit this by putting forward a process that could, in theory, remove the president from office. And they want to do this based on something that we've all heard about and that anyone who is looking at honestly says does not rise to the level of a high crime or misdemeanor. If you don't like it, vote against Trump. That's why we have elections. If you think that it was unfair in some way, but not illegal, there is a process for that. Vote. Democrats pretend to care so much about voting. They say if only they can get more people to vote, of course they would win. They're always the majority, even when the votes come in short of what they need for power. Uh, Pelosi in particular, I, I wonder when I could meet somebody who would tell me that Nancy Pelosi is someone that you could feel good about supporting as a powerful politician. I know a lot of Democrats, and they all seem to understand that Nancy Pelosi serves a role, but she'll just say whatever. She'll say anything. Whatever she has to say at any point in time, that is what Nancy Pelosi will do. You had an example of that last night when she was on the Colbert. Oh, no, it's not the Colbert Rapport anymore. That was the old show, right? Truthiness. That was actually a much better show. Now he does the late show in New York, which I can't imagine how how many nights in a row can someone just do the same tired Trump jokes before people get tired. But the answer is that audience, the leftists, people live in New York, L.A., San Francisco, D.C., never, never get tired of Trump jokes. Doesn't matter if they're funny. Doesn't matter if they've heard them before. Just keep it coming. Anti-Trumpism is a compulsion for these people. It's like they have an addiction to people trashing Trump from whatever platform they can. 
But one thing that you'll never have on the right, you'll never have in conservatism, uh, at least not any time in the near future. Uh, maybe things will change dramatically in my lifetime, although I doubt it. When Democrat politicians go on these late night shows, the whole point of it is to massage, massage some of the propaganda to let the Democrats have their say and also have somebody who's cool and has a lot of cultural resonance and a big platform, a lot of people watching like uh, Colbert does, make that Democrat just seem cool. You know, they do this. They'll have CNN anchors on, too, who are overwhelmingly unimpressive dorks. But they'll have them on and make them seem cool. You know, yeah. When they're done with that show, like then they're going to go hang out at a big fancy cocktail party on the Upper West Side or something with all the other very cool people and media and intelligentsia and all the rest of it. Uh, there's a lot. There's a cultural blessing, although I don't think they like the term blessing. But there's a cultural blessing that occurs on that show for Democrats that never extends to Republicans, never extends to them. An example was last night when you had Pelosi on with Colbert. And unfortunately, a lot of people still get their news from these stupid, hackneyed late night shows. Uh, but here's what she said about, I mean, you, you guys all know, at least those of you who've listened to me for a long time, I have some rules, right? What's one of my rules about politicians? Whenever they say it's for the children, you know they're pretty much lying to you, right? Whenever they say it's for the children, they're trying to manipulate your emotions and they're being shameless. Oh, look at this, Nancy Pelosi. What does she think about what's going on right now? Play 22. Because they said, what advice would you get people who want to run for office? And I told them they have to have their vision and their knowledge and their strategic thinking and their connection to the aspirations of their constituents. But I said, it's, this is not for the faint of heart. So if you want to go into the arena, you have to be prepared to take a punch. But you also have to be prepared to throw a punch for the children. For the children. <laughs> throw a punch. For the children. children. <laughs> Madam Speaker, thank you so much for being here on this momentous day. Uh, good luck to the Constitution. There we are. Throw a punch for the children, everybody. That's what they're doing in this impeachment hearing. They're throwing punches for the kids. It's for the kids, you see. That's why they're doing all this stuff. Not so that Nancy Pelosi's fancy liberal friends in San Francisco and New York and D.C. can think that she's doing a good job, give her a high five. I don't know if she does high fives, but whatever it is, at the next cocktail party, which are real things. And people say, oh, stop talking about liberal cocktail parties. No, they exist. Trust me. I don't get invited to them, but I know they exist. I have friends who go to them. Uh, This is just shameful. This whole thing is shameful. And the acrimony that you're going to see as a result of it is only going to get worse. There's no effort here to restore norms, to bring us back to a place where at least we could count on Democrats to play by some of the rules or think that some of the rules are important, even when the rules are not favorable to what a Democrat or the Democrat majority wants. That's what it means to have a principle. That's what it means to respect the system. They speak about respect for the system. They speak about respect for the Constitution, which is laughable, by the way, to anybody who remembers what was going on with Democrats during the eight years of the Obama presidency. And Democrats went forward with a law that regulates inactivity. And then a 5-4 decision in the Supreme Court keeps that grossly unconstitutional legislation alive. And they want to tell us about the Constitution and about 
individual rights and liberty. I mean, it's it's a joke. It's ridiculous. And unfortunately, it's deeply unfunny. We're going to see this now with very few surprises. It's just a shouting match. The left on one side, the Democrats on one side, Republicans on the other. Whatever they can do that hurts the president is what they will do. Everything else is a distant concern for them, including throwing a punch for the children. Founding fathers understood that a leader might take hold of the Oval Office who would sacrifice the national security, who would fail to defend the Constitution, who would place his personal or political interests above the interests of the country. They understood that might happen. And they provided a mechanism to deal with it, and that mechanism is called impeachment. Adam Schiff invoking the Founding Fathers. I I don't want to throw up because you would hear it on radio and you would see it on the Pluto channel, which so that would be bad. But I, I did feel my stomach turn a little bit. This guy, the one who lied to the American people for two years, saying the president was a traitor, a traitor, folks, working with Russia, betraying the United States of America. And now it's, oh, he puts his interest above U.S. national security interests. I have a question for Adam Schiff. Who determines U.S. national security interests in Ukraine? President of the United States. They run into some problems here. Anybody who understands the way our system of government is really built quickly figures out that they're just making this stuff up. They have no idea what they're really saying. It's all just blah, blah, Constitution, blah, blah, our democracy, Trump is bad, throw Trump out of office. All, all the rest of it is just noise. It's dressing up a flimsy case, which is what they currently have against the president. I'm annoyed that we have to spend as much time as we do as a country going into an election year when there are some big things to talk about, like Medicare for all, Elizabeth Warren. We'll get to that. Don't worry. That's coming up. And we should be having very serious discussions about things that will affect you. That will be the difference between you sitting in a waiting room and finding out that you can see the doctor you want when you want, or you sitting in a waiting room and being told, sorry, it's going to be nine months. I know your arm really hurts and maybe you need surgery, but Elizabeth Warren's plan doesn't allow you to see a specialist that quickly because we're overwhelmed. But don't you feel good because illegal aliens now have health care that you're paying for? That's in your future if these Democrats win. Instead of talking about that, though, it's all impeachment, Trump treason, lies, lies, and more lies from the Democrats. I suppose we should not be surprised. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Elizabeth Warren has a plan. Oh, yes, she has a plan. For a lot of things. But how to pay for Medicare for all, a signature issue of her presidential run, is, is not one of them until today. Elizabeth Warren, everybody, wants to tell you that you're going to have free health care for the rest of your life. And basically none of you are going to have to pay for that. I hate to say this, but we do reach a point at which if somebody is so stupid as to believe a thing, I wonder if it's possible that they're smart enough to believe why that thing is wrong in any capacity, no matter what I tell them. No one should really think it is possible as a function of math, goods and services, basic economics, supply and demand, any of it. No one should think that what Elizabeth Warren says 
is even vaguely possible. Remember, it's not just that she says it's going to be really good health insurance, not going to pay, but that the middle class, no tax hikes on the middle class, despite a $52 trillion Medicare for all plan. All right. Elizabeth Warren tweeted out today. Today, I'm releasing my plan to pay for Medicare for all. All right, I'll stop. Here's the headline. My plan won't raise taxes one penny on middle class families. In fact, we'll return about $11 trillion to the American people. That's bigger than the biggest tax cut in our history. Here's how. My friends, this is this is utterly absurd. She's not only telling you that she's not going to pay or she's not going to raise taxes on the middle class. She's telling you that she's going to engage in a tax cut. How is that possible? Here's what she writes on Twitter. I asked top experts to examine my Medicare for all plan. They concluded we can cover everyone. And this is from Elizabeth Warren. All right. Cover everyone and give them vastly better coverage without a tax increase on middle-class families. Uh, This analysis was done by Dr. Donald Berwick, one of the nation's top experts in Medicare and Medicaid programs under President Obama, uh, and Simon Johnson, the former chief economist at the International Monetary Fund and a professor at MIT. In addition to providing coverage for everyone, they concluded that my plan would slightly reduce the amount of money the United States would otherwise spend on health care over the next 10 years. I'm fighting for Medicare for all. I have the only detailed plan to pay for it. And we're the only Democratic primary campaign that has laid out the true full cost of any health care plan, Medicare or otherwise. I look forward to others doing the same. My friends. Oh, and here you go. Also, we cover the remaining $11 trillion with taxes on big corporations, Wall Street and the 1% and enforcing the tax laws we now have. Add in a targeted cut to a Defense Department slush fund and that's it. This is just insane, my friends. This is completely and utterly bonkers. And she's supposed to be the super smart policy wonk of the Democrats who are running her and and Buttigieg, who are both. He's also Medicare for all guy. They really think that they can do this. They think they can do this in a way that's so efficient that you could have Sweden or, you know, Denmark levels of universal health care without their levels of taxation. How would that be possible? Why why would we be so much better at this? And keep in mind, when we're comparing ourselves, which the Democrats love to do to countries like Sweden that have, let's say, 20 million people in it, okay? America has 330 million people. The healthcare system here is much more complex, much larger, and is dealing with all kinds of complexities. No one's sitting around saying, when are the Swedes going to cure cancer? I mean, maybe, but it's going to be America, most likely. So we have a lot of things to think about for our healthcare system that other countries don't really, or they're free riders on our, on our system. But this the, the claim that she can do this without raising taxes on the middle class and without destroying the rest of the economy is... Utterly absurd. Here's how Fox News writes this up today on the it's the main story on the website. Warren's project uh, Warren projects no new tax burden for the middle class. The Warren campaign claims those 11 trillion in individual costs would drop to practically zero 
while the plan maintains and boosts a funding pipeline from other sources. The plan carries a total price tag of just under $52 trillion over the next 10 years, or slightly less than cost projections for the current system. That factors in current and additional spending. New spending alone would be in the $20 trillion range compared with roughly $32 trillion for Sanders' plan. Now, so, that, so let's be clear. The $52 trillion is all in healthcare spending under this plan. The $20 trillion is in excess of current government health care expenditures. So the government's going to spend, according to Warren, an additional $20 trillion over 10 years. Basically going to double what the government spends every year for 10 years. Bernie Sanders is saying it's $30 trillion, which would be doubling what the government spends every year. We're going to put these people in charge of this much of the economy? The, the genius of our system economically, and we see this now, we've got great job numbers. Isn't it so amazing to Obama, we suffered through a recession for years and they kept calling it a recovery. Trump, all we have is a booming economy and we keep being told any minute now it's going to change. Any minute now it's going to change. Hasn't changed yet. Hmm. Almost like they're trying to play games with the public's expectations for political reasons. But let's get back now for a second to why is America so rich? You could argue that the Soviet Union, for example, had better strategic geography, natural resources. I mean, you could argue that. Why is America so wealthy? America has done as well as it has done because it has harnessed individual ingenuity, individual initiative, people pursuing their own self-interest economically, and in doing so, becoming more productive, more efficient, inventing stuff, being entrepreneurs, being good employees, because it benefits them. Human beings, we are all inherently self-interested creatures. This is just a fact. I know the Marxists out there say, see, they're admitting it. The fat cats, they're so selfish. Elizabeth Warren's like, see, they're just, they don't want to give all the money from the Wall Street to the poor people. Elizabeth Warren's worth about $10 million, by the way. But, you know, she cares so much about poor people. But the system we have rewards people for doing good, smart, efficient things, providing services, coming up with new technologies, being better at stuff, or just being good at stuff. You know, and, I, and I think that one, one important lesson that we all have is, you know, you can be the person who works at the gas station, who does a great job, and everybody's happy to see and is efficient and quick. And, you know, maybe you get more tips and then maybe you become a manager and then maybe you become a regional manager. You know, you can be that person. You can be the person who shows up and hates their job and is bad at it. We want a system that, ben that, that advantages one person over the other person based on what they do. Right? That, that is the system that we want. And Democrats also refuse to understand that because of the market signals because of price and this now goes back into the central planning which is i know a recurring theme that i've been bringing up with you here but the government is not good at determining how many different kinds of milk we should have who should make the milk where should the milk go walk into a whole foods now you'll see not just moo cow milk i don't know why i did a moo there but it just came to my mind you'll have 
you know, almond milk and soy milk and hazelnut milk and five different providers of a few of those. And they'll be in different sizes and different colored boxes. And what would happen if the government was saying, yeah, we're just going to be your milk provider? Do you, do you think you'd have better tasting, cheaper milk? Does anybody? Elizabeth Warren thinks the answer is yes. Elizabeth Warren and she, they would deny this because it makes it, it clarifies situation. Elizabeth Warren wants you to believe that if the government was in charge of what milk you could buy in the store, the government was the only person paying for milk, the government got to regulate what kind of milk was out there and determine what the price of milk was, that you'd be able to go in there and you'd, I mean, I mean, I drink milk sometimes now that's so fancy. I feel bougie. The first sip, I was drinking Walnut milk the other day. I didn't even know they made that till recently. It's kind of good. Healthcare is even more complicated than the dairy or the milk industry. And put aside for a moment that almond milk is almond juice that's lying about being milk. We have very clear lessons for why we have had more people taken out of poverty in the last 50 years than in all of human history before it combined. It is because of markets because of individual incentive, and because we have a system that leverages the desire within human beings to do well and to do better, and a system that inherently elevates the good, the efficient, the smart, the hardworking, and does not, does not similarly elevate those who don't really care, don't want to do a good job, don't want to do it the right way. Now, if you apply Elizabeth Warren's thinking about or rather our discussion about milk to Elizabeth Warren's thinking about healthcare, all the things that I'm telling you, everything that we said was true about Obamacare, that conservatives said was true about Obamacare, turned out to be true. Yes, it was a stepping stone to single payer. They said that was a lie. Yes, it was a stepping stone to socialism. They said that was a lie. Now we have open socialists running in the Democratic ticket. Oh, what a, what a shock. Yes, it would be mostly a, a massive expansion of Medicaid. You know, when I was debating healthcare at, at Politicon with a bunch of leftists and my man, Glenn Jacobs, who's awesome. He was, he was on my team. Uh, he's the libertarian perspective, but libertarians also like markets. But we're debating, as I said to them, just explain this to me. And, and this, this really, including the MD, but he's a psychiatrist, so we know he's a little leftist wacky. Uh, not all of them. But like 95% of them are. I'm just telling you, it's true. I said to them, why, why go through all of this? If the real problem is the uninsured in this country, why not just expand Medicaid to cover anybody who's uninsured? There's no such thing. If you don't have health insurance, now you have Medicaid. Why not just do that? Wouldn't that take care? If it's really just about insuring everybody, just tell any anyone who walks in and says, oh, you don't have insurance? Well, now you have Medicaid. I mean, it can't be because it's too expensive. They're talking about $30 trillion, 20, tri 20 to $30 trillion of new government spending. I mean, I, and you're only really looking at about 15 to 20 million Americans, roughly, who aren't covered in Medicaid, don't have insurance or, you know, or have a problem. Why radically transform the whole system? Well, because they want you to go to the doctor and they won't say this, but they want your insurance to be no better than Medicaid and somebody on Medicaid's insurance to be no better than yours. You're all going to be the same. Think about how what that means for the people right now that are used to having insurance, used to having options, going to see private doctors. 
You think your insurance is going to get better? You think that's going to be fun? Oh, and Democrats want to make sure that illegal aliens are also right there with you now. So they have the same insurance that you do too. Everyone's going to have the same insurance. Be government mandated. This is what the government will pay for. Go back to the milk on the shelves in the store. Government's the only person that pays for milk in the whole country. The government decides what's acceptable for the size of milk, the taste of milk. Is it going to get better? Is it going to get cheaper? You're going to have more options? They are fundamentally wrong. Just like what they said about how Obamacare was going to be amazing and great. Yeah, some people get subsidies. Some people get free stuff from the government. Other people have to pay for that free stuff. Not good for them. I thought this was going to fix the problem of the uninsured. Why didn't Obamacare <clears throat> Obamacare fix the problem of the uninsured? Oh, now we need single payer. They told us we wouldn't need single payer. Now we do. <clears throat> the people who were right the last time, people like me, among many others, they should be listened to now. The people that are promising the magical chocolate cake that never runs out, that costs you nothing, that you can eat tons of and never get fat. They should, honestly, their ideas should be ridiculed. Elizabeth Warren's ideas is ridiculous. This is absurd. And no tax increases on the middle class that pay for this. That's, you know, you know who comprises the tax base? People that make money. And yeah, there's, there's a class of rich people in this country who already, by the way, pay a lot of taxes. But everybody else, because there's so many of them, that's where the real money is. Got to make everybody pay. Value-added tax, consumption tax, whatever it may be. They're going to throw all these things into the mix. It's a nightmare. So just the next time you're in the store, look at the shelves and think about what would these shelves look like if Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders got their way in the Congress, which is also a huge, that's a whole, I mean, politically, this whole, it's never going to happen, folks. Just, they're not going to get there. So why would you elect somebody that's got a stupid plan that's crazy that'll bankrupt the country and that the Congress won't even go along with? At least I don't think they would. Well, this is because I live in the real world. It's very frustrating to live in the real world these days. It's much more fun to live in liberal fantasy land where everything would just be fine if it wasn't for Donald Trump. You know, every, we could fix everything, give everyone great health care. Nobody should be held responsible for their bad decisions. Nobody should feel like they're being left out of the economy no matter how little they do or it's it's just the difference between reality and unreality you know what side of this i want to be on it wasn't until i heard of a man by the name of bernie sanders that i began to question and assert and recognize my inherent value as a human being that deserves health care, housing, education, and a living wage. Wasn't until Bernie Sanders came along that AOC, who's endorsed Bernie Sanders, said she understood, or rather began to question and assert and recognize her inherent value as a human being. Have we, and that means health care, housing, food, everything. Have we learned nothing from the experiment of the Soviet Union? The answer with someone like Bernie Sanders is they have learned nothing. They don't understand. And you could say, but Buck, they're not going to be as radical as the Soviets were. Well, one, that's because of political possibility. They can't. Even if they wanted to go as radical as the Soviets were, they wouldn't be able to get there. We're in a very different place culturally and, and just as a country and within our economy, much richer, by the way, as well. One of the problems we run into with liberals is that even when they're destroying something, if it's rich enough, it can take a while 
for us to figure out that they're destroying that thing. And they argue all along that they're not destroying it. And by the time it's unavoidable to come to the conclusion that they've ruined it, like California, uh, it's too late. So then it doesn't matter that we were right. That's, I think, what you can expect for the healthcare system with Democrats if they were to get their way with Medicare for all. Um, we have to take this very seriously because two of the three top candidates, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, believe that this is the way to go. In fact, Buttigieg, who is a top four or five candidate, also thinks that Medicare for all is the way to go. But Ocasio-Cortez, I mean, that that almost sounded like idol worship until Bernie Sanders came along. She didn't understand her full inherent value as a human being. She needed a guy to come around to say, you're going to have the rich people paying more. You're going to pay less. You're going to have housing. You're going to have food, all the things. And then all of a sudden you recognize your inherent value as a human being. That's both bizarre and kind of sad. So I wasn't planning to spend much time here talking about uh, Congresswoman Katie Hill. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't really particularly like to get involved in the personal life stuff of public figures. I mean, just I, I don't find it all that interesting. And it was already pretty clear to me that she was going to have to resign. And now she has resigned. It's a congresswoman from California. We had uh, Tiana Lowe from The Examiner on earlier in the week talking about this. But now I've got a problem. Now I've got a problem with this because it's quite clear what happened. She messed up. She did things she wasn't supposed to do. And then because she associates with some bad people, including apparently her ex-husband, there was embarrassing stuff that happened to her. But on the way out, instead of just accepting responsibility for what happened, understanding that she messed up, she made a mistake, she's now trying to do what Democrats love to do, which is rewrite the narrative, blame their political enemies, and then try to probably down the line resurrect some kind of public, uh, public life, public career for oneself. Uh, just to, to review the facts here, Katie Hill had a uh, had multiple. Well, she denies one and, and accepts the other one. There's photos, though, of at least one of them naked and brushing each other's hair or something. Um, she had a sexual relationships as a member of Congress with people who were on her payroll, work for her, and she has the power to hire and fire. Now, Congress established rules that you, these are congressional rules, specific to Congress, you can't do that. So just by way of a, a comparison here, you know, I, if I walk into a country club and I insist on walking around the dining room using my cell phone, some of you who belong to country clubs will know that's a big, some places that's a big no-no. And they decide that, okay, we have a rule against this. If you're not going to get off your cell phone, we're going to kick you out of the club. And you keep talking on your cell phone. That's on you. Those are the rules of the club. You won't obey them. The club has the right to say these are the rules. You're gone. She broke house rules. No question. There's no there's no debate about whether or not she. And it's a pretty serious rule, too. I mean, I know the cell phone thing is on, but I just mean that different bodies have the right to declare you know, this isn't a criminal proceeding. No one's saying she should go to prison for this. But the Congress can say that this is the way we're going to conduct ourselves. This is now a rule they've come up with in the Me Too era. And she broke that rule. This is very, this is very straightforward. But now what ends up happening is uh, it's, it's about other things, she's saying. Well, she's saying it's about revenge porn. Okay. Uh, 
there is a lack of wisdom, I think, that some people have when they, especially if you're a person in public life and you're taking these kinds of photos. But that's a personal, I just, I think it's a bad move. Uh, That said, somebody using that, especially anybody who is in a trusted and perhaps an intimate setting with someone, I mean, using that against a human being is a is a despicable thing. And do I think that there was perhaps a little bit too much in some places at some publications, a little bit of quiet glee at being able to share what were clearly humiliating photos of a of a Democrat? Um, Yeah, probably. I, I think there was a little too much, hey, look at this revenge porn that we're reporting on. By the way, did we tell you this uh, revenge porn thing? Is... Now, step back for a second. If this were a Republican female, the you know the New York Times would have been running the photos on the front page. Right? It would have been a totally different situation. So I, I'm aware of that. Right? I, uh, trust me, the double standard here couldn't be any more clear. But if it's a, if, because it's a Democrat... They're downplaying it, but that doesn't mean that it's a free-for-all either. People should be able to just, or people should feel ethical as journalists spreading this stuff all over the place. But my problem here is that Katie Hill, I mean, I've got obviously a bunch of problems with this. Katie Hill, Democrat, former Democrat congresswoman from California, is blaming other people for this. She's claiming that there's a double standard, that there's sexism at work here. Play clip two, please. I will never shirk my responsibility for this sudden ending to my time here. But I have to say more because this is bigger than me. I am leaving now because of a double standard. I am leaving because I no longer want to be used as a bargaining chip. I'm leaving because I didn't want to be peddled by papers and blogs and websites used by shameless operatives for the dirtiest gutter politics that I've ever seen and the right-wing media to drive clicks and expand their audience by distributing intimate photos of me taken without my knowledge, let alone my consent, for the sexual entertainment of millions. I'm leaving because of a misogynistic culture that gleefully consumed my naked pictures, capitalized on my sexuality, and enabled my abusive ex to continue that abuse, this time with the entire country watching. Nope, that's not why she's leaving. None of that is true. She's leaving because she had sex with people that she was paying with public funds as a member of Congress in her office. That's unacceptable. That's it. Oh, she can try to do all this other stuff. Oh, no, look at this over here. No, can't do it. Not allowed to do it. And the Democrats know that if they let her, if they want to talk about a double standard, what is the double standard? If they let her stay, then there'd be a double standard. So, and, and the Democrats now still like to keep this stuff. They're waiting for a Republican to mess up in this way. Can you imagine what the media frenzy would be? Can you imagine the news coverage that would occur? If this had been Congressman, you know, Nunes or Crenshaw or Gates brushing a a female aide's hair, you know, whatever, like I, didn't, I actually I will tell you, I didn't even see the photos. I, I didn't think I needed to. But whatever was going on in those photos, can you imagine the frenzy? Oh, the late night jokes. Oh, Stephen Colbert and Kimmel would be making oh, they'd be having a great time with this one. The double standard. If a male, and particularly a male Republican, was doing this, by the way, I'm not even getting into the thruple stuff, which I don't even know what that was. It's like a threesome couple. You're a three-person couple, so you all get to have sex with each other. I mean, 
you know, consenting adults can do what they want to do, but if it wasn't a Democrat doing that stuff, I assure you there would have been a whole lot more interest. So there, she, she starts off that, that clip, and that was perfect. This is classic. This is Democrat misdirection propaganda 101, really. Uh, she starts off by saying this, uh, that she would never shirk responsibility. Nope, she is trying to. She, she couldn't get out of this entirely, but she is trying to shirk responsibility. Because the next thing that comes out of her mouth is basically, this is bigger than me. No. No, it's not. It's actually, it's actually not bigger than her. It's stuff. Don't have sex with people when you're a congressperson who work for you on your congressional staff who are being paid with public funds and who you are entrusted to behave professionally around as a as a member of Congress, an elected official in the United States government. That's it. This is now the standard. By the way, if a Republican comes out and has some affair, you know, and I by the way, it's just, a, I think, a matter of time. Let's be realistic. Before some Republican member is having some something or other going on with his staffer. There are some very lovely staffers on Capitol Hill. I've spent some time around there. It would not be surprising to anybody. That guy's going to have to go. These are the rules now, right? These are the rules. Members of Congress agree to, agree to abide by the rules. But I hope that person, whoever it is, and maybe I'm wrong and it, well, this won't happen, but I hope that Republican member of Congress doesn't turn around and say, but, but, you know, there was a conspiracy against me or there was a double standard or... And then for her to turn this into a, uh, for Katie Hill to say this is about the right-wing media. Uh, well, why is it their fault? They didn't make you, they didn't make Katie Hill break the rules. They didn't make her uh, act in this way. But really what we know is that she's trying to establish on her way out the ultimate currency on the left, victimhood status. She gets to become a victim. Well, then, you know, she'll, be able to rewrite the narrative in time and that she was a victim of a misogynist, you know, right-wing media attack. I and mean, this is almost like the Hillary playbook back in the day, the vast right-wing conspiracy, right? Just make something up, blame blame some enemies out there and act like your conduct had nothing to do with any of it. Um, oh, and if you really want to make sure that you can still get some speeches on the speaker circuit, maybe get a book, be invited to fancy luncheons, maybe get a board seat somewhere or something, you really, you know what the, what's the one thing she hasn't done yet? Katie Hill's on the way out because of her own actions, admitted, proven, done, but she's saying all this other stuff. What's the one thing that she hasn't done yet that, other than saying that she's going to fight the NRA for the rest of her life, which is, that's the classic, that is the Justin Trudeau move. I want to take all of your assault weapons or the Harvey Weinstein, you know, yeah, I'm going to dedicate myself to fighting the NRA. No. How about Harvey Weinstein? Dedicate yourself to not being a sexual predator. But what is the one thing that she hasn't done? Oh, that's right. She has not yet attacked Donald Trump. Play clip three, please. I'm leaving, but we have men who have been credibly accused of intentional acts of sexual violence and remain in boardrooms, on the Supreme Court, in this very body, and worst of all, in the Oval Office. Wow. Just in time there. What a slander. Now, I'll just put aside for a second the fact that you've had all these people come out and accuse Trump of this or that. Do we know any of the who who's the really credible source for Donald Trump engaged in sexual violence against a woman? And don't tell me this thing about he said he would grab. I know what he said. He was saying that they let they let you was what he said. He says when you're a star, you can be sexually aggressive with women and they let you 
because that is, he was saying, they're consenting to it. Okay, that was locker room talk. We know that. Who was the, was it the woman who came forward and wrote that book and then on Anderson Cooper's show, uh, show on live TV at CNN said that uh, rape is sexy? Quote, unquote, rape is sexy. That is what she said. She's the credible source. Who's the credible source for the president of the United States as a rapist? Do I believe the president's a philanderer? Yes. Have I ever for one second believed that he's a rapist based on the allegations, the stories, the fact pattern? No, I don't believe it. Sorry. And to put Kavanaugh in there, too. We are now at a point where if you think that Kavanaugh assaulted these women, you're just not very smart. I don't know what else to say. Or you've deceived yourself so much that you're incapable of rational thought on this issue. They can't even prove that Blasey Ford met him. She can't even tell a convincing story about meeting him. Where, when, how, who took you home? That's not credibly accused. It's the opposite of credibly accused. I don't know. One more thing in this. Since I'm talking about Blasey Ford. She just, I saw yesterday, she, uh, I'm trying to think of what the, what the award was called. Hold on. Let me see if I can find this. Christine Blasey Ford. She got an award. Um, Daily Wire reporting on this. Had to give an acceptance speech. She was in the cover of, what was it? Time Magazine. Here we go. Accepted an empowerment award. From the YWCA Silicon Valley, gave a speech, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. All right, my friends. I'm just going to, I'm not letting this go because it's appalling what they did to Kavanaugh. It's one of the, it's the ugliest thing I've ever seen in American politics to this day still. Um, I'm not letting go that the press pretended, and I remember having this dispute publicly with people, the press to, uh, pretended at the time to be so dumb that they really didn't think that there was any upside for Christine Blasey Ford for accusing Kavanaugh. Why would she lie? She has nothing to gain, they kept saying. I looked around saying, other than being famous, being revered, being rich, being a hero to the the left, um, and fulfilling her own ideological uh, beliefs to stop Kavanaugh from being on the court to protect Roe v. Wade, most likely, those were all obvious things. And I was saying at the time, of course, she's going to be she's going to get a book deal. She's going to be on the cover of Vanity Fair. All these things will happen. But they they pretended because it was just necessary for the storyline at the time, trying to fool stupid people. The media pretended across the board to be a bunch of morons. Why would she lie? She has nothing to gain. She's got a ton of stuff to gain. Who the heck knew who Christine Blasey Ford was before? Now we all know her name. Now she gets awards. Now she's in the covers of magazines. Now I'm sure wherever she goes, women who are leftists, who don't know any better, approach her and say, thank you so much for what you did. You know, Thank you for making up a story and trying to ruin a guy's life in front of his wife and children and all of America. Because, you know, Roe v. Wade, sacred. That's why. That's what she had to gain. This was obvious. Who didn't know that? I knew it. You knew it. Getting awards. Oh, just wait for the book to come out. Oh, that'll be. Just give that some time. <sighs> this is why. This is why no one. This is why you can't trust the media. Can't trust the Democrats. That's if nothing else. Take that from today. You recently attended a wedding that was also attended by Ivanka Trump. What did you talk about? <laughs> I was. I was a, a, a little drunk. 
I expect nothing less. And, <laughs> and I was with Orlando Bloom. Okay. Who I think was equally, if not slightly less drunk than I was. Okay. And we were stood at the bar. And what did you say? And Ivanka <laughs> was also at the bar. And I can't, I can't 100% remember it, but I remember that, that we were quite drunk. And we started going, Ivanka, you can do something. <laughs> you can do something. You can do something. You can make a difference. You can make a difference. You can make it better. And Ivanka stuck was, I remember Ivanka was going, I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> and then the night carried on. I kept drinking. And then the next day, it was like a two-day wedding. And the next day, there was like a drinks thing in the afternoon. And I'd forgotten all about it until I saw her across this sort of garden and it all came back <laughs> so, oh, that. And, uh, and she just said um, I bet you've got a headache this morning and like I just was like can you just like do something it's like I'm not even from this country but I just I believe that liberal narrative of you know Ivanka could like maybe stop her dad from being you know such a a, a, a lunatic and so I was <laughs> I just I wish I could be in I, I it would be so much more fun to be a left wing news person a left person in, in the media on the left because you just walk around and you know that everyone's kind of gonna just love whatever stupid thing you say about this all you have to do is all you have to do is come over into the darkness just be anti-Trump and you just be like I want to it was like you can do something and I was drunk and everyone's like, oh, but that's like awesome because it's like, it's like drunk hashtag resistance. You know what I mean? It's fantastic. Eh, not so much. I'm starting to like Mark Zuckerberg. His unorthodox haircut is uh, something that might take some getting used to for me still. But, but I, I like that he now has perhaps seen enough of the leftism out there and the desire for censorship which comes from the left the desire for domination of information and speech and dissemination of all of that which comes from the left that now he's like wow these people are crazy we got to figure out a way to allow for the exchange of ideas in what is a massively powerful platform facebook so he's been better i i, I think that what he's doing for example on political ads is better than what Jack Dorsey's doing over at Twitter, which is, yeah, we're going to let people pay for political ads. Like, we're, we're not going to do what the left wants here and try to rely on the built-in uh, the built-in advantages that the left tends to have in these platforms to make it organic. Because it's never really organic. It's never really what it's just supposed to be. There's algorithms and there's upgrading and downgrading and all these things. But some of you probably are are familiar with Aaron Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin has made quite a name for himself as a screenwriter. He actually wrote The Social Network, the movie The Social Network, which was not particularly favorable to Mark Zuckerberg, by the way. But it's a very, it is a very entertaining movie for what it is. Justin Timberlake, husband of Jessica Biel, did do a pretty good job in it, much to my chagrin. Anyway, uh... But Aaron Sorkin in the New York Times has written an open letter to Mark Zuckerberg. Facebook isn't defending free speech. 
It's assaulting the truth. Hmm. Let's take a look at this, shall we? Mr. Sorkin, who, oh, you know him, by the way, for making his name in Hollywood for writing very snappy, witty dialogue between people. No one really talks like the way that the characters in Aaron Sorkin shows or movies talk. I mean, no one, it's just, it's a weird, I mean, I guess some people find it entertaining, but just it's very forced, I think. Uh, here's what he writes in this editorial, though, where he's telling Mark Zuckerberg that it is assaulting truth instead of defending free speech. Quote, this is Aaron Sorkin. Most people don't have the resources to employ a battalion of fact checkers. Nonetheless, while testifying before a congressional committee two weeks ago, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez asked you the following. Do you see a potential problem here with a complete lack of fact checking on political advertisements? Then when she pushed you further, asking you if Facebook would or would not take down lies, you answered, Congresswoman, in most cases in a democracy, I believe people should be able to see for themselves what politicians they may or may not vote for are saying and judge their character for themselves. Now, if you tell me, now you tell me, if I'd known you felt that way, I'd have had the Winklevoss twins invent Facebook. Ooh, burn, burn. The Winklevoss twins inventing Facebook. Oh, no. Uh, That's because, you know, the Winklevoss twins are supposed to be the preppy elite, always get their way. And by the way, they're worth a ton of money now, not just from Facebook, but from cryptocurrency. They they crushed it in, in being early in the cryptocurrency world. So those guys are... You know, I don't know. They want to start a conservative. Hey, Winklevoss twins, you want to start a conservative media outlet? I know, I know a guy. We could do some things. This guy's got cash to burn. Uh, but here's how Mark Zuckerberg responded. And like I said, I kind of like Zuck Unleashed here. Zuck and Buck could be that'd be fun. I got a be fun guy to interview. Actually, America isn't easy. America is advanced citizenship. You got to want it bad because it's going to put up a fight. It's going to say, you want free speech? Let's see you acknowledge a man whose words make your blood boil, who's standing center stage and advocating at the top of his lungs that which you would spend a lifetime opposing at the top of yours. You want to claim this land as the land of the free? Then the symbol of your country can't be a flag, just a flag. The symbol also has to be one of its citizens exercising his right to burn that flag in protest. Show me that, defend that, celebrate that in your classrooms. Then you can stand up and sing about the land of the free. That's what Mark Zuckerberg posted on Facebook. You know where it comes from? It was written by Aaron Sorkin in the movie The American President. Yeah. So clearly that was meant to be a soaring moment of oratory in the film written by Aaron Sorkin. And so to that, I would just want to ask, hold on a moment. What changed between that movie, which I think came out in probably 1998 or something, it was quite a bit old now, and today? That seems also true. In fact, these uh, principles about, I don't have to like your speech, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. You know, that this is what Old school liberals used to say this was the standard way that they would approach these topics. It became cliche 
That that phrase, I whatever, I forget what the exact one is. But you know, you have these these old school liberals who believed in the freedom to burn flags and burn bras and the freedom to say really bad stuff and the freedom to march and to be you know and to be uh, racist and uh, you know they used to, now you have in the pages of the most revered liberal outlets and in, in news outlets in the country people on the editorial boards of the New York Times and Washington Post advocating for hate speech laws criminalizing it now liberals will say that a couple of stupid and i believe drunk uh white kids walking across a campus and I think I can't remember if they're drunk or not. doesn't matter. Uh, and yelling the N word isn't just stupid and and uh, you know, something that should be condemned, but should be criminal. You go to prison for that, for saying a word. And then I can go into a gym, as I did yesterday, to try to work out a little bit and hear people blasting over the PA system songs with lots of people saying the N word. So. Some people can say it, it's fine. Other people go to prison for it. And liberals today will say, yeah, that's the way it should be. Really? I thought, I thought freedom of speech was something we all agreed on. Here's the troubling reality. It's not just Aaron Sorkin. There are others, too. Uh, freedom of speech, when it really matters, is not something the left believes in anymore. They believe in power. They believe that they know what is right. The government should be empowered to do what they think is right. And anyone who stands in the way of that is bad. Not just wrong, but bad. And all decision-making, all policy disputes are taken through or are, are pulled through that filter first. This is troubling. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And this is not the way liberals were even going back a few, you know, maybe five or 10 years. It's, it's been getting worse. I mean, progressively with college campuses, they have the speech codes and they've been trying to silence people. But liberals now want censorship and they want censorship help from the most powerful platforms of information exchange in the history of the world. And you have to remember that too. This isn't just, you know, one abusive cleric in one town of, uh, you know, Renaissance era Italy or something saying, no, we're going to burn these books. Okay, that's bad, but that's one town. This now would be information dominance and control of the dissemination of information on a global scale. Much more powerful, much more far reaching. And what's at stake here is the perception of millions, hundreds of millions of people on any number of issues. And the left will not give this up. They want it the way they want it. They will not adhere to the principle here. They do not believe that people should have their say on this. There is only one say, what they say. That's it. Mark Zuckerberg gets credit here, man. That was a fantastic response to Aaron Sorkin calling him out. Now, Aaron Sorkin's a sanctimonious lib. This is no surprise. Mark Zuckerberg, I would think, is a Democrat, but he seems to at least be a Democrat who, having built a very large company and having seen what the left of his own party believes about how that company should be run now, understands that the so-called liberals, and I hate that term for them, but they've used it specifically as a way of throwing us off the truth. They're not liberals. They are statists. They are progressives. They are leftists. 
They're socialists. But they are a threat to liberty. And that's not uh, a talking point. That's not exaggeration. What liberties do we really have if we don't have the liberty to say things that liberals don't like? So-called liberals. How can we be considered a free people if we're not free to say things that are offensive? This was central. This was taught in schools. This was one of the few areas where left and right could really come together and agree. They could coincide. They could have a worthwhile discussion about this. And at the end of the day, they tended to be at least willing to adhere to the basic principle of free speech. It's gone now. It's just a question of how long it'll be on life support before liberals can completely eliminate it. They don't even aspire to share the basic tenets of free speech with us. They don't even, they don't, they've openly embraced censoring things they don't like. They've openly embraced control of the government so that they can shut down things that they say are offensive. Mark Zuckerberg, credit where it's due. Not only just for slapping down Aaron Sorkin, who's just really insufferable. Just go watch a little bit of The West Wing. Oh, it's so cute. Both sides presented. But like the left is always a little smarter, a little better, a little more moral, a little more courageous. And the Democrats are always the good guys, really. The, the, uh, the conservatives are basically all being paid off by big oil or something. Or they just need some really clever lib to explain to them why, you know, drilling in Anwar is a terrible idea. You know, I remember that one. Uh, and that show, I tried to watch some of it, but I, I've seen a few episodes and it's just a, a fantasy land for liberals where they win every argument. And John Stewart basically took that formula with the daily show. Let's have a comedy show where we talk about the issues of the day and just make fun of the other side and present straw man arguments. And our side always wins. People love this stuff. They love it. They loved it during the Bush administration to pretend that there was really an alternative presidency on TV. That's what it was with uh, Martin Sheen in the role of the, what was it, Jeb Bartlett, I think was his name or something, the brilliant all-American professor from New Hampshire who's a Democrat. Yeah, I wonder if Jeb Bartlett thinks that there are two genders. It'd be a fun question to ask on that show, but the show's gone now. Well, it's happening, my friends. President Trump is moving to Florida. That's right. It has been established now that the president of the United States is officially changing his personal residence. Obviously, he technically lives in D.C., um, but he would he now will be a, a resident of the great state of Florida. Reasons for this are pretty clear, right? Florida, no state income tax. Florida is a place that has better weather than New York, I'll just admit it, and better politics than New York. At least there's some real red parts of Florida. There's some real conservatism, some Republican politics that matter in Florida. Unfortunately, here in D.C., I'm sorry, in New York, also true in D.C. where I used to live, uh, here in New York, that is not the case. Um, there is, in fact, no real uh, Republican party in New York City that that really does very much or does much of anything. So, I just wanted to share this with you. I was looking for this. So you got the president of the United States saying that he's leaving the place that he's called, the state that he's called his primary home for his entire adult life. He's from here. Everyone always forgets that. 80% of New York City voted for Hillary Clinton in the last election. I think so many people forget that somehow Hillary Clinton, a total uh, you know, transplant in New York, a real a fraud in that regard, 
well, in a lot of regards, she's more embraced by New York than a guy who's a native-born New Yorker who's lived here his whole life and been a, really a part of the city his whole life. Just goes to show you the power of Democrat narrative and politics. But in response to this, you had uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio tweet out, don't let the door hit you on the way out or whatever. Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, good riddance. It's not like real Donald Trump paid taxes here anyway. He's all yours, Florida. The uh, first lady of New York City, Charlene McRae, the wife of Mayor Bill de Blasio, just wrote, boy, bye, in reference to Donald Trump leaving. And Mayor Bill de Blasio also wrote, our deepest condolences to the good people of Florida as Trump attempts to outrun his past and near future. So here you have the politicians for for the city of New York and for the state of New York who are celebrating the loss of probably the most, well, I think you could say now, no question, the most famous New Yorker alive. And because of the tax situation, and also I'm sure at some level because of the insane politics of this city, uh, which increasingly people don't realize, Wall Street is liberal. Everybody needs to get this through their heads. Most people on Wall Street, most of these hedge fund billionaires, these people, they like Hillary, they donate to Democrats. Wall Street is liberal. It's not some bastion of right wing stuff. Yeah, they want lower taxes, maybe. That's it. They want to keep more of their money on everything else. Trust me, they're socially liberal. They're probably all about climate change. This is, you know, the rest of the country, because you hear Elizabeth Warren, when she talks about, huh, we're going to have a tax on Wall Street and all. People say, oh, yeah, those right-wingers on... There's no right-wing Wall Street. There are people who are on Wall Street, but overwhelmingly. Goldman Sachs, liberal. Liberal place, left-wing, donates to Dems. You go down the line, these big financial... These mega banks, financial institutions, they're all about supporting Democrats, all about supporting the left. So you just look at the donations. Um, Somehow... Rich people gets conflated with Republicans all the time, and it's it's total nonsense. This is where I have to think, man, I don't know. It'd be kind of nice to move down to Florida. you got better weather. I have to think of where I'd go. Miami comes to mind for me because I'm a, a single guy, and that would be kind of fun. But Palm Beach, I hear, is very, very nice. West Palm Beach, I hear, is very nice. Other places in Florida that are you know, more up and coming or uh, you know, a little less... Uh, a little less bougie, perhaps. What's the where is where would you if you had to move? A Tampa has some great places. Naples has some great stuff. Where's the if you had to move to Florida tomorrow, producer Mark? Where would it be? Uh, I, I'd like the West Palm area. West Palm, yeah, right? I have That's some family down there. Really nice, yeah. I used to live in Coral Springs, Florida, actually. Yeah. For middle and high school, I, I, I lived there. Yeah. How was it? I mean, as a kid, it's a lot different, just because I couldn't drive. A lot of old people, stuff like that. So as a kid, I would say it was bad. But now that there's no state income tax in Florida, I'd go in a second. Yeah, I probably need to spend time in the Panhandle, right? Yeah. Jacksonville and places like that sure. that are up uh, in the red part of Florida. Just don't go to Key West. They get obliterated by hurricanes all the time. Oh, I've been there a couple of times. Don't move there, you're saying. Yeah, don't move there. Yeah, well, nice you can go to, to Key West. Nice place to visit. Yeah. That's where the party at. Anytime well, you, you want to move the Freedom Hut down there. Yeah, you want, if we want to move Let's the Freedom go. Hut to Florida, you're good? I'm all good. Right. Yeah. Something to think about, man. No state income tax. That's all that matters New to York me. City, I think it's like... What is it, 12 or 13 percent? Something ridiculous. It's outrageous. For what? I, did, I mean, this stuff you have to deal with here in the city sometimes. I know a lot of you are saying, Buck, come out to wherever. Probably get a great place. Man, I, I don't even want to know how far my money would go in a wonderful city like Omaha. It'd be great. Have a great time there.
Team Buck, it's time for roll call. Man, I can't believe another week of fantastic shows done here in the Freedom Hut. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you're enjoying also watching us on the the first, which is on uh, Pluto TV. And you can watch the channel 248. If you're listening on the radio or the podcast, you can watch a video a live stream of the radio show. Please do uh, check it out. And uh, thank you so much for that. Also want to say today, in case she is listening, happy birthday to my mom. Mrs. Sexton, uh, she is the only Mrs. Sexton running around right now because some of the kids are taking, you know, not, not, we're not, the boys are not married yet. Um, so, mom, happy birthday. You're the best mom in the world. Thank you so much for all your support. Love you. And uh, you don't like a day over 35. All right. Let's get to what we have going on here in the roll call inbox. Uh, Wayne. Hey, Buck. I started listening to your show recently from Denver. I've gotten tired of Hannity, etc., because they all seem to allow the leftists to control the game by going into defense mode for Trump, even though he's done nothing. It reminds me of the years I've spent in Ukraine listening to and reading Ukrainian, American, and Russian media. Putin would commit crimes and incursions against Ukraine, then immediately accuse Kiev, it's actually, they say Kiev, I believe, over there, of the crime or justify the crime as a protection of Russian families in Ukraine. Ukraine would go right into defense mode and try to explain what really happened, sometimes making themselves seem like a guilty party, falling all over themselves in reactive response. Putin owned them every time, running the game as a propaganda master. Kiev, Brussels, Washington would all scramble uh, when Putin went to lunch in Sochi with his 25-year-old mistress. My question, when will we stop reacting to Kremlin-esque strategy and start controlling the game? I'm tired of hearing all the pundits squawking about what the Dems are doing. The Dems are playing everyone for idiots and winning the PR game. Thanks, Buck. Wayne. Well, if you're asking me when, Wayne, I think the answer is it may never happen. Um, Democrats excel at propaganda. Democrats have control of the media. They have control of the academy. They have control of... Most of the social media platforms that really move the conversation right now. Um, how do we go on offense? We just keep fighting. We just keep fighting. It's never this battle is never done. There's no victory. There's only just, you know, the day to day. Who's winning right now? The score changes all the time, and the stakes are the future of this country, and in some ways, the future of the of the world. So it matters. It certainly matters. Um, Michael, let's see here. Indeed, the Trump legacy may very well become his unprecedented effect of outing double agent statists, swampers and leftists from their cozy little fiefdoms. If only enough voters would recognize them at primary time instead of being played by the state committees. Don't really like mandatory term limits, but I'm all in for the current agenda of convention of states. Thanks for all the great radio work, Mike, in Pennsylvania. Well, Mike, thank you so much for writing in. And uh, yes, Trump has definitely had this side effect of exposing people, in some cases, people who have been supposedly conservatives for a very long time. Hmm. That's been interesting to see that happen. And uh, yes, I, I would have to agree with you that there's... Uh, 
there are a lot of benefits of Trumpism that I could not have even expected from the beginning. I think he's done quite a good job with them. Uh, let's see. Hey, Buck. It's from Maureen. And producer Mark, you man of mystery. About that whole polyamory thing. Oh, no. This, sorry. We already read this one. This was about the... Uh, <laughs> Buck wants to talk about polyamory and poly something or other. Another one. What's this? Polyamory. What was the other one? We learned this other one, though. Polyandry. That's uh, one woman with more than one husband. Yeah, I just want to point out you were reading the email where we learned it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you could have just looked down. Yeah, no, I know. Mm-hmm. I'm just, that's what, I'm, that's what I did. It I, took okay. me a second. All right. But polyandry was the new one that I learned about. That one sounds the worst. Well, to you me. learn something new every day. I'm going to have a wife and I'm going to be sharing her with multiple dudes. This is the worst. Now, do you have to be intimate with the other dudes? I don't know. That's a, that's an interesting question. That is another. If Maureen can write in and tell us, that'd be that interesting. That's another part of it, right? Or is it just like a harem? Except you're, it's a it's a dude, it's a man harem. You know what I mean? Like you take turns. Yeah, mm. yeah. I don't know. look. And the people are pushing this lifestyle these days of poly whatever. And uh, I'm just trying to learn. I'm just trying to. Oh, we got somebody else who wrote in on this. Um, Jacob writes, Buck. I'm a millennial, six months older than you. OS Team Buck, Las Vegas here. I'm listening to Friday's show as I write this. I've seen a show on polyamory already. About 12 years ago, the Learning Channel ran a documentary series that followed a couple of polyamorous relationships. There was a married couple who shared a girlfriend and a woman who had two live-in boyfriends. I watched it once out of curiosity and couldn't make myself watch it again. I thought you want to know you're right without knowing it. Keep it up. P.S., the Lepanto show is the coolest two hours in the history of digital media. And long live Commie Bear. Man, Jacob, thank you so much. Yeah, we didn't talk about Lepanto Day, October 7th this year. Uh, but you, you can still find it on the internet. We should just drop that into the feed. It'd be fun. Get everyone to listen to... Uh... Next year, we'll just drop the Lepanto show as an extra into the uh, into the feed. I mean, why not? That'd be fun. Um, I think I... Yeah, we could definitely do that. I miss it. I miss it. Lepanto show it was good times. Chuck rhymes with Buck. So if Trump is impeached by the super secret impeachment, will he even know he is impeached? I realize that we should expect a trial or something, but the way the Dems are doing things, why should that happen? Everyone agrees an impeachment would be destructive to our democracy. So wouldn't for the sake of the country, it'd be better to keep the whole process secret. This is no more ridiculous than many other claims they have made recently. That leads back to the question would Trump even know he was impeached? What might that look like? Uh, what do you think, Buck? Um, I'm not really sure what we're being asked. I'm not really sure whether, if Trump is impeached, will he even know he is impeached? Uh, yes, I think he would know if he's impeached. So, and then, right? I think he's asking if the Dems are even going to do a trial with Trump there. Like they did with, I believe they did that with Clinton, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. If they're even going to do a trial, they'll just impeach him without him even there. Um, I think that's what he's getting at. Yeah. Okay. Well, the answer is I don't know. So we'll have to see what they end up doing. I got to go back. I was too young to remember much of the Trump, I mean, the uh, Clinton impeachment stuff. So I should go and, and check some of that stuff out. This is where being a graybeard millennial is not, not fantastic because you don't have the institutional knowledge of being an adult who was politically involved at that point in time. All right. Um, my name is Hunter and I am 12. I really enjoy your show. I listen to it every day after school. 
You've really helped me enjoy politics. I've been listening for about a year now. I heard my dad listen to it, and I thought it was cool. Well, Hunter, I think you're cool. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Really appreciate it. Give your dad a big high five and a hug from all of us here in the Freedom Hut. And it's great to have somebody 12 years old, man, listen to the show every day. That's really, really cool. I am, uh, I am humbled and very appreciative. So thank you so much, Hunter. Stay with it. You'll never turn into a crazy lib like the rest of them. Dan. Hey, Buck. I am, uh, I am original Saturday Squad from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Was having dinner with my wife the other night and found this gluten-free beer. Had a pint and felt it had to be a serviceable alternative. If you're ever in the Green Bay area, let me know. I'll buy you one. Dan, thank you so much. I have never been up to uh, Green Bay, but if I get up there, I will certainly reach out. And I appreciate very much hearing from you, my man. And uh, gluten-free beer is okay. If you really, if you're going to go that route, somebody who has celiac disease, I've had to think about this stuff. Cider, producer Mark, is what you... Because cider is naturally gluten-free. Yeah, I was just going to say, why don't Cider's you just drink cider? Yeah. yeah, that cider can be fantastic. I actually have um, I have uh, some tart cider in my fridge. That's mm. really excellent. There's actually a place out on Long Island in Riverhead called the Riverhead Cider House. Really? They have they make their own ciders. They're delicious. Yeah. No, cider's like candy. Yeah. yeah just oh, it's very how, sugary. Yeah, I was going to say, you don't know how yeah. much sugar's in it. That's the problem. You're basically drinking like Mott's apple juice with a little bit of booze thrown into it. Basically. Yeah. It's still good though. It's delicious. Delicious. It's delicious. Gina. Gina. Here we go. Watching you on the blaze about four to five years ago while living in Texas was the start of my political awakening. I've not stopped searching since that time. Thanks to you. I've also called you twice while I lived in Charlotte. So happy to finally see you on TV again. Gina, thank you so much for watching me on TV again. Thank you for being a part of what we do here in the Freedom Hut. I very much appreciate it. It really means a lot. Noah! Wow, here we go. Oh, no, Noah wrote in. I, some of these are old emails that look like they're new emails. Why did that happen? He was 15. He's writing in about minimum wage. We got. I've got to do a better job. Okay, you know what? I'm just going to go... Let's do some Facebook. All right, now we get into the uh, Facebook portion of this. An homage, in a sense, to Mark Zuckerberg, who we had to give a high five to today for slapping down sanctimonious Aaron Sorkin on the show. All right, let us let us get let us get to it, my friends. Uh, let's see, where are we here? Uh, we're doing the Facebook. Okay, yes. Pardon, pardon me. Uh, we have. Alex, who writes, hey, Buck, I work for a congressman, and he recently quoted Buck during a floor speech in Congress. He'd like to send Buck a copy of the speech. Is there a mailing address that I could send this to? I'm very happy to verify everything so you know this isn't some sort of scam. Sure. I got quoted by a member of Congress on the floor. Look at that. Yeah, we can uh, DM him personally. Yeah, we'll send him the stuff. Sure. Maybe the congressman sure, can come in. Yeah, the congressman can call in, too. Call be in, like, yeah. Buck, I loved your quote, or whatever it was. The Buck is very quotable. Charlie. Hey, Buck, Charlie from Penn State. My question is, how do you go to a wedding without a date? That's sad. Haha, ha, jokes aside, I'm a big fan. Shields high. Well, sorry that some of us have had to go to weddings without a date sometimes. You know, it's uh, a thing that can happen. You'll never, never have done. to worry about this again because you will be married very soon. Yeah. The only weddings I've gone to, at least as an adult, I'm not talking about as a kid, I've had a date. Yeah. I mean, if it's a family wedding, though, in your situation, it's not that big of a deal. But, like, my wedding, for example, you're not going to go without a date. You only know me. 
Exactly. Well, you're not going to see me. Yeah, correct. Much. Yeah, exactly. You got to have it. Or else you're just like a stranger wandering around unknown. Exactly. It's not fun at all. Yeah. No, I know. I know. Well, also, Wedding Crashers is propaganda, damn it. That's not, that's not how it works. You don't go to a wedding and you don't know anybody. Because remember, they're crashing weddings. They don't know. You don't go to a wedding. You don't know anybody. And there's nothing but beautiful bridesmaids who are like, I just like really need someone to give me some love and attention now. Like, that's not how it happens. The bridesmaids are all being shuttled by Bridezilla back and forth for photos and got to be in place at the time and the whole thing. It's not, you're not like dancing around with a bunch of Sports Illustrated swimsuit models who are like, I just feel the need for some love because I'm not getting married and she is. That's not how it works. That's what it looks like at Wedding Crashers. The anger in your voice makes me think that you don't understand the concept of a movie, Buck. No, because I, I saw Wedding Crashers and I thought to myself, this is the way it's supposed to be. But it's not a documentary. Yeah, but no one thinks it's a documentary. Obviously, me, you it did. Me, it just made me sad. <laughs> could you start a fraternity like in old school? Yes, you could. I mean, would it be that much fun? Probably not. I'm just, I think it was false promises. That's all I'm trying to say. Uh, Bram writes, you keep saying you don't have a college team to cheer for. You're more than welcome to cheer for the Oklahoma Sooners. Thank you so much, man. I will, I will, when I find, what is a Sooner? I don't know, but I know it's the nickname for the team well, in Oklahoma. I figured, that, yeah. I figured that out too. Thanks, Sherlock. But I'm just saying, there's I don't know what a sooner is, but I'll figure that out. I'll, I'll go for it. Uh, here we go. Jeremy writes, Buck, if you're over the age of 25 and don't have or work with kids, you should be banned from wearing Halloween costumes. Also, even as a graduate of a Big Ten school and with an above-average basketball program, I agree with you that school should be for school. If people are so bent on college athletes getting paid, maybe they can be compensated for how far they go in their respective college tournament. Something crazy like rewarding excellence, since that's how the real world works. Shields high, Jeremy. Yeah, I mean, people get very emotionally attached to college athletics. And so when I tell them that I'm not saying we shouldn't have college sports or college competition. I'm just saying we shouldn't do this thing. Uh, we shouldn't do this thing where we pretend that people that are coming to these schools are students when they're really just athletic mercenaries who are brought in to do that sport. And some of them can barely read, can barely do the, uh, the most basic of classes in college. And it's just, it also the whole focus of these schools on, Oh, is our team winning? The, the focus should be on like, what's the average SAT, the incoming class and what jobs are people getting when they graduate and how much are they earning? And like, that should really be the, the school pride, I, I hate that school pride should be about how good is this school at at preparing people to be successful and excellent adults. Not, yeah, our team went nine and two last year. Yay. Who cares? And I, I know I get I I can hear the booze. Who cares? I'm not saying don't watch and enjoy. I'm talking about when you're a student in the school, you know, if they win, they lose, fine. You know, school pride is fine, but I know. It's like it's like I'm a communist now. Everyone hates this. Why can't you do both, Buck? Why can't you be invested in the college sports teams and be a good student? I'm not saying you can't be a good student and be invested in college sports. That would be crazy. I'm saying the focus of the school and administrators is too heavily on their athletic programs at some of these big major schools, and it's just not what school is supposed to be. I mean, say, like, let's take Ohio State, for example. Just pull I knew we were going to go there. They're a good school, too. Yeah, it's a good school too, but most of the top programs are also good schools. Yeah, I don't know. I just that's why can't they just have like people show up and do tryouts? Why do they have to have all this recruiting and all this nonsense? Who cares? Because they need to make money. 
I mean, th- all, there is all a about point the, to a lot of it. All about the but Benjamins I'm saying at the end that's of the, the day. big schools. It's not all the schools. And what I'm really talking about is like, why does Princeton recruit for the the squash team? Who the hell cares? It makes no sense. Princeton and other Ivy League schools don't allow scholarships. Yeah, but they still recruit. They still bring they people do, in that would not they, get in otherwise. Top tier, uh, not necessarily. It depends on the sport. Look at you with the sports knowledge over here. Actually, know some stuff. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, my yeah. background is in sports, but I remember this now. Yeah. yeah, but it's you know, I went to Amherst and we had guys who were on the football team who could who could like barely put a sentence together, and I was always like, "What for? It's a D three school. They stink. Who cares?" Uh, but that was my experience. That was my experience. What, what do I what do I know except about everything? Uh, please tell people this weekend, uh, first of all, write in to tell producer Mark that he's wrong and Buck is right. That's always important so that he knows that. Teambuck at iHeartMedia.com, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Please tell somebody about the show this weekend. I hope you're enjoying the Pluto stream. Channel 248, the first on Pluto TV. And, uh, oh, yeah, that's right. Shields high.